This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day here on this Friday. We've got a lot going on in the world today. Perhaps some of you have seen the headlines today. Inflation report was out this morning, and it was a surprise. Surprise to the upside. Not terribly shocking, I'm sure, to a lot of us who've had to buy fuel here over the past several months. We'll be talking to Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing here in segment two about that report and perhaps what to expect with this afternoon's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with Mike Strands. He's the vice president of advocacy at the National Farmers Union. There was an update to House Bill 7606, encompasses a lot of issues touching on inflation and competition. Mike's going to share NFU's perspective on this bill. And at the end of the show, we're going to speak with Norita Taylor. Yesterday, there was a hearing with Nam. Robin Hutchison, who's been nominated to head the Federal Motor Carry Safety Association. And Narita is going to share with us how OIDA, the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association, viewed that conversation. But before we get into all of that, folks, today, this Friday, is the last day of the 2022 World Pork Expo. Big crowds gathered in Des Moines at the state fairgrounds and had conversations all week about the pork industry. Joining me today for an update on that industry is Maria Ziba. She's the Assistant Vice President of International Affairs at the National Pork Producers Council. And Maria, how are you feeling after a week at World Pork Expo? Well, we're a little tired, but we're very excited that we uh, were able to host so many producers um, and, and have such a great party for, for them and, and meetings. Maria, as you were talking with producers and exhibitors and the crowds that were at the World Pork Expo, what was the overall sentiment? How were pork producers feeling as 2022 moves into summer? Like we had really great turnout at Expo this year, both from the producer attendance and the industry participation throughout the trade show and the hospitality areas. Um, you know, Expo, we, we've had to cancel it a few years, but. Uh, because of the ASF and, and the coronavirus. But this year, was we were back to, to normal, and uh, Expo is such a vital event for, for networking and those educational opportunities that are offered. Um, you know, producers are, are in a tough spot right now with inflation and, and high input costs, but it was just wonderful to see everybody and, and be able to have some very timely discussions and on, on some topics. and and talk about the industry's innovation and how we move forward. Um, so it was a really great opportunity for all of us to, to get together and, and, and see what our long range vision is and, and what we're gonna focus on for the future and, and what's gonna drive the growth for the industry. Absolutely. I heard a lot of optimism as I was talking to folks around the fairgrounds there at World Pork. And Maria, one other topic that came up, I think, nearly in every conversation I had was foreign animal disease. You mentioned ASF caused the cancellation of World Pork Expo several years ago. We continue to see outbreaks around the world. In your role as the Vice President of International Affairs, Maria, how do you see foreign animal disease impacting the global pork trade in 2022? Well, it's certainly an ongoing issue. It um, has created some opportunities in key markets like in the Philippines, in Vietnam, and, and other parts of uh, other countries in Southeast Asia and China where they're still uh, battling the disease. Step forward. Um, but for us in, in our industry, the, the top priority for us is preparedness and prevention and making sure that we don't get ASF or any other foreign animal disease because what we do know is that if we were to come um, test positive and have a positive outbreak that it would automatically shut down our export markets and so that's that's something that is significant for our producers we export over 30%, close to 30% of our production to over 100 countries, and that would have a very devastating effect on, on not just pork producers, but the, the entire U.S. economy. 
Maria, if we were to see that ASF outbreak, God forbid, happen on our shores, would it be all U.S. pork pretty much banned from the international trade, or would they be able to regionalize the country somehow like we've done with avian influenza? Well, negotiations have been ongoing for quite some time. Um, we've been working with uh, U.S. government and foreign governments to develop a plan and a cohesive strategy on how to reopen markets once if and if we we do have a positive outbreak of a foreign animal disease um, those conversations are still ongoing um, and you know a lot of these unfortunately become very political so it's going to take us a little bit more time but our you know mppc is is uh, really trying and pushing our, our government and foreign governments to uh, move forward on on the adoption of um, a regionalization strategy, but most importantly, that protection zone that the U.S. government was able to establish last year through the OIE. That's right, folks. We've got to keep this ASF off our shores. Practice that biosecurity on your operations. Maria, while we've got you on the line, earlier this year, you were talking about the importance of potentially rejoining the CPTPP Economic Partnership. And I'm curious, is that something that still seems like an avenue we could see the Biden administration pursue? Well, it's quite difficult. Um, I, I want to set expectations for our producers that that's still something we're pushing for, but it's going to be very difficult. The uh, Biden administration recently launched the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, unfortunately, that does not include new market access. It's mostly designed to set standards abroad and then work on some common issues. But we're, you know, if we can't get into CPTPP because of the market access, then we're going to push this administration to include market access in, in those broader negotiations on the IPAC, the Pacific Economic Framework. How much overlap is there in the countries that are members of the CPTPP and that are currently in discussion here for the IPEF? There's a little bit of overlap, but in the IPEF, what you have are countries like India and Thailand, where we've had some really ongoing issues for, for decades, and we pretty much have a de facto ban for our pork, and don't, they don't allow it in. So there's, there's great opportunity there. The Philippines is part of IPEF. In those three countries, we could definitely capture some market share and, um, and, and really move, move the ball forward. It, nor, and not only normalizing trade, but making things permanent. That's why we always encourage free trade agreements and, and discussions in that area, because we've had some recent wins in the Philippines and Vietnam when, where they've lowered their tariffs on U.S. pork. But a lot of times, those are just temporary. They're not permanent. And how you make them permanent, how you codify that is through the negotiations of trade agreements. Absolutely. And get that permanence that producers need for their long-term planning. NPPC, Maria, does a lot of work on this issue. Where can listeners go to stay up to date with the work you're doing? Well, our website, we just revamped it with our new logo, NPPC.org. You can find more information there. Fantastic, folks. NPPC.org. Check that out. We've been talking to Maria Ziba, Assistant VP of International Affairs there at National Pork Producers Council. Maria, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And folks, we're going to talk with Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing about today's inflation data when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger, 
larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. How many acres are you keeping an eye on? Another pair of eyes could be very helpful in protecting your ROI, especially ones that are highly trained. And that's what you'll get with an FS Crop Specialist. They can spot issues you might not even know you have using the latest technology, including thermal, drone, and NDVI imaging. Then they can get an early treatment plan started. Contact your local FS Crop Specialist to learn more about our crop scouting services. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday's program, we talked quite a bit about the impact of rising prices and how it can impact all sorts of different avenues here in the ag industry. We heard about bridge construction. We heard about oil prices. All of these things are seeing elevated costs. And we did that yesterday because this morning we got from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, the monthly CPI report. And it was a surprise to a lot of economists, to a lot of analysts who were expecting this. And to bring us up to speed on exactly what happened, joining me now is Chris Robinson. He is of Robinson Ag Marketing and the author of The Robinson Review. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on today's show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. You know, back in March, it was said by the smartest guys in the room, quote, unquote, that that was going to be the peak for this inflation cycle. Chris, did that turn out to be the case? No, it didn't. And I'm sure whoever said that, you know, the, the, the video never goes away. I'm sure they wish they hadn't said that, right? Um, and, and it just goes to show you that the smartest people, you can have a extremely high IQ, PhD, Nobel Prize. And the Mr. Market is, you know, at the end of the day, Mr. Market tells you what the price should be. And they were expecting another month of only 8.3%, which is still huge inflation. And we got 86 and it's the highest since 1981, and um, you know, so it was kind of a shocker. The only positive thing, the last unemployment uh, figures we got last week um, still show that unemployment's relatively low. So that's the only. If there is a silver lining, that's it. But certainly, inflation is and it's inflation something that we haven't seen. Depending on how old you are, I've seen it. I'm 55 years old, but uh, you know, if you didn't live through it in the 70s and 80s. It's a new experience for um, a whole generation. 
Well, I, I think that's a huge point. And it's one thing that goes under remarked upon the folks who are, you know, 40 and under 45 and under perhaps really kind of missed that last big inflationary move up in prices seen there in the 80s that we're now circling back to. And Chris, how can we manage through this sort of volatility? And what should we be doing when inflation is moving this high this fast? Well, I, I think the first thing is, is, is don't panic. Um, I, that's number one. This, this problem took years to develop, and, and it's not going to be fixed overnight. So you, talk, you start to take uh, you know, prudent steps. What does that mean? Well, if you can lock in a price that makes good sense to you, um, you know, look for an opportunity like that. I, I'd say that I'd resist the temptation to try and, try and guess where the next crude oil price is going to be. I would just kind of say, okay, from what we've got, look, today, we know for a fact that we've got expensive gas. How can we plan for that? And then if it gets better, then that'll be a bonus. So, um, you know, I just think I'm a big believer in, in just trading what reality is, not what you hope it's going to be or what it might be. And we're going to have to slog through this. Um, I, one good thing about inflation, if there is one, is historically – and when we had inflationary markets, the ag markets did pretty well. Um, and I think a lot of this is going to get passed through, and you've seen it. You know, we're at uh, contract highs in soybeans with tremendous demand there for new crop soybeans. Um, so that's, that's the one good thing. At least the output prices have increased. You know, we're at eight, nine-year highs. Um, I think the worst-case scenario would be for producers if we had very high inputs and we still had, you know, soybeans at ten bucks and corn at three fifty. So at least our output prices are keeping pace with it. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think this is in this environment, you've got to be very careful about your spreadsheets, about where your profitability level is. And I think you need to have some cushion as to say, okay, this is my these are my input costs, this is my gasoline costs. You know, how can I plan for them possibly going higher? I think those are two two things to to look at. For seven years, we had pretty flat grain markets and pretty flat prices. We were in about 50 cent trading range in corn and about a dollar fifty trading range in soybeans. So we haven't seen this, but I think the problem is a lot of people got lulled to sleep between like 2013 and 2019. So uh, you've got to really get back to focusing on what your what your business costs are. And I think the people that are going to survive this the best are the ones that have the best handle on exactly where all their money's going. And, um, you know, that's, that's the number one thing. If you don't have a budget, maybe you didn't need a budget for the last six, seven, eight years. You're going to need one now if we continue to have inflation. Absolutely. If you were sleeping for the last seven years, I bet $120 crude oil proved about as good as a strong cup of coffee in waking you up. Chris, while we're thinking about inflation next week, the Federal Open Market Committee is going to meet the Fed. It's widely expected we'll see a 50 basis point increase in rates. Does today's number raise the risk that it could be more? Uh, it depends. I think they got cover from the um, good employment numbers. As long as they don't, the worst case scenario for the Fed is if we start having unemployment numbers jump. Um, that's that would cause them, I think, to back off. So if they can raise rates, I think they want to raise rates. Obviously, they've made that pretty clear. Um, and you know, I think a 50% basis point is is going to be you know in the cards. Um, I don't think they're going to back off that. They, I think they really feel the pressure now to try and get inflation under control. And there's two ways to, to do that, as far as I know. The, all the econ that I took in high school and college is two ways. It, you have, they raise rates, but also at some point, unfortunately, they're going to have to cut spending. And that's been the big thing for the last, really since the 08 financial crisis, is there has been no will in Congress by either party to cut spending. They've just continued to, to uh, print money and um, I talked a little bit earlier, there was this something called modern monetary theory where they actually believed up until about a year ago that you could just print money forever and not get inflation. And that seemed to have backfired on now. And that's one of those things where you, sometimes you have the smartest people in the room saying, oh, we can do this. So they've, they've learned they can't do that. They're going to have to adjust. And I do believe they're going to continue to raise rates because that is their one weapon. That's their one tool. They're a carpenter. Uh, and that's their, their one tool, and, and they're going to continue to see that. And um, I think they probably, you know, if you look at what the plans are, they, they want to get the Fed funds rate up to above 3%. And you've already seen the cost of borrowing jump uh, tremendously. Uh, and I think that's something, you know, if there's any way you can lock in your long-term costs, 
you know, yes, we've bumped up a little bit, but you've already started to see it, mortgages and stuff like that going up. And, uh, you know, the cost of borrowing money, you know, for 10, 12, 14 years, it was free. So when it goes from free to 1%, then that's a 100%, you know, jump. If it goes from free to 2%, that's a 200% jump. And that, hopefully, is what will dial back inflation. That's what the Fed is banking on. I've got a question here. I'm wondering about the labor pool, Chris. As you think about wages climbing, are, are we just seeing more and more people leaving the labor force? Well, that's the interesting. You, know, you look at those numbers and the labor participation rate is still relatively low. A lot of that is because the boomers, who I'm not a boomer, I'm, I'm a Gen X, but a lot of those people are retiring. So that's being factored in as well. Uh, again, if we have unemployment at 3%, I'm old enough to remember when uh, you know, 7% or 6% was considered really good unemployment numbers and back in the 80s and 90s. That was, their, that was their term for full employment. So that may switch as we go on with those labor pool as people retire. Um, but every month, you know, there's 6 or 7 million jobs that are gone wanting, um, and, and that's one positive thing. I think the worst-case scenario would be kind of a return to the 70s. If you look back there, we had – low growth and we had high unemployment and you had people that wanted to work that couldn't work at least right now there are jobs out there that are going um wanting and you know we may see where that corrects itself here in the next year year and a half if people start getting worried about what the economy is going to do if we start talking about a recession which a lot of people already think we may have already tipped into a recession all that is is it's two months of negative growth that's what a recession is if we dip into a recession you could see people say, you know what, maybe I'll, I will go back to work and take that job that six months ago I didn't want to. Uh, they may have to settle for it. So um, watch that labor participation rate and also watch the unemployment rate. As long as it stays around 3 3.5%, I think the Fed keeps pounding uh, um, and raising interest rates. All right. And the big question is, can we stay there with this fuel price rising? Chris, are you getting concerned about shortages of diesel at harvest time? I don't know. You know, that, that'll, that depends. The market tends to self-correct if you let it alone. Um, are we going to go back to where we, you know, when I was a kid, I can remember, you know, odd even days. And if you, had a, you had to have an odd number on your license plate to get uh, gasoline, which basically was rationing. That, that may come down the road. I mean, it depends. The, the problem with the uh, gasoline prices and diesel prices is we have not built a new refinery in 45 years in this country. This is a long-term problem that both sides of the aisle owe responsibility for. Nobody's wanted to have a refinery built in their backyard. And that's kind of coming home to roost. Um, now, it, it this type is. of price shock may, may, may have people, you know, uh, we can build some more refinery prices. But um, I would be surprised if we had gas rationing. How's that? I'll leave it there. That is good to hear. Chris, where can folks follow you? You can follow me at Robinson Ag Marketing. You can follow me on Twitter, CBR Hedge. I'll just Google Chris Robinson and uh, give me a call. Thank you. He'll be there, folks. Thank you, Chris, for breaking this down for us. And stick around. We'll have more AOA after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, ahead of the June WASDE report, we see the grain markets trading their way lower as we have uh, dipped a little bit here in the soy complex with beans, bean meal, bean oil under some moderate pressure, while corn and wheat are relatively flat to slightly lower here ahead of the WASDE report. We saw this morning inflation numbers released. The consumer price index rose 1% month on month in May, up from 0.3% in April, and up from analyst expectations that it would rise to 0.7%. The headline CPI rose to a 40-year high of 8.6% year-on-year in May, up from 8.3% in April, and beating analyst expectations of a slight decline to 8.2%. That is weighing on our stock market here this morning. S&P futures down 100 points, NASDAQ down 370, the Dow Jones down 732 and continuing to fall. Crude oil as well backing off the highs now after the inflation data was released, down 23 cents a barrel, 121.28. Grains, though, again, are mostly holding up. Livestock as well here as we have that WASDE report coming up at 11 a.m. Central Time. And uh, the trade will momentarily take the focus off changing Midwest weather forecasts, but that will likely become the focus again very quickly if we continue on the current path. Fundamentally as well, traders will put an increasing focus on the June 30th USDA acreage and stocks reports. The weather will continue to be a big determinant of future price action. A look at a few of the numbers here in the trade as we work through our mid-morning. We see cord futures uh, anywhere from about 3 to 4 lower. July down 4 to half, 7.68.5. Soybeans anywhere from 13 to 18 cents lower. July 17.50.5. Wheat futures slipping a bit in winter wheat, uh, 10 to 13 lower in Chicago and KC. Spring wheat for July down 5.5, and 12.18.5. Hogs up moderately, cattle down moderately. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. Boy, we are talking about higher food and fuel prices there with Chris Robinson referencing the CPA data reported this morning. Yesterday, House Democrats introduced a bill, H.R. 7606. It's not the first time that bill number has been introduced. In fact, if you listen to this show regularly, you might say, hey, that sounds familiar. I feel like you talked about that bill last week. Well, we did. We talked about the old House Bill 7606, which was this meat and poultry special investigator. Now there's been some, some changes to that bill. They've added some. They've remarketed it as the Lower Food and Fuel Costs Bill. And joining me today to talk about it is Mike Strands, the Vice Presidency of Advocacy at the National Farmers Union. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be with you. So last week, we spoke just briefly about that House Bill 7606, that special prosecutor bill for the meat industry. Is that still a component of this newly reintroduced version? That's right, Mike. Uh, and I appreciate the uh, the dive in on some of the parliamentary moves this week on Capitol Hill. Uh, that's right. H.R. 7606, the uh, Meat and Poultry Special Investigator Act is indeed still part of that bill. Uh, what happened was that several other pieces of legislation that had been moving and advancing through the Ag Committee or other parts of the House of Representatives uh, are also ready to go to the floor for House consideration. So uh, they, what happens oftentimes is Congress will package those bills together and uh, determine the rules for debate, which will be happening next week. 
And uh, that's right, the special investigator bill is part of that. Some of the other pieces that have been added, uh, there's about six or seven other bills that have been uh, baked into it at this point. A couple of them uh, tackle biofuels issues where uh, in an effort to help develop the biofuel and ethanol industry and provide some more infrastructure, there's a bill added to this that would do just that. And there's also a piece on making uh, year-round fuel choice a reality and uh, providing waivers for that. So those are two aspects that National Farmers Union has supported for a long time. Another piece is on uh, making sure that the Butcher Block Act or uh, a bill brought forward by a few members of the House Ag Committee that would expand grants for meat processing expansion and development would be part of it as well. So there's a few more bill pieces that have been stuck onto the Special Investigator Act and I'm glad to see it's making progress. Mike, and you, you mentioned that, that NFU has been working on these, that ethanol piece is huge. What's your sense? Is I know you've done the work on these back when they were independent. Now they're all packaged together. What's your sense on getting a package like this through to the finish line here in a midterm election year? Yeah, that's a, that's a valid concern. And just uh, it's not so much the midterm election as it is the calendar uh, with Congress being in session here for another two and a half weeks or so in June, and then another few weeks in July, you're getting real close to the election and things start to slow down. So there's an ever narrowing window to have some progress here. So the fact that a few different bills all related to fuel costs, food costs are, are moving ahead, that's a big step because there's certainly similar movements on many of these bills on the Senate side. So uh, just because a bunch of them have been packaged together right now, uh, there might need to be some other uh, gymnastics that go on, so to speak, in the legislative front uh, to see some of these across. Uh, for instance, in the special investigator bill, the, the Senate uh, Ag Committee had a hearing about those a few weeks about that bill a few weeks ago, and seems poised to make uh, further action a reality. So uh, that's a spot where we might see some progress as well. All right, we'll keep an eye on those issues. Mike, I want to go a little bit more big picture here as we head into the summer. I know NFU has spent several years talking about the importance of competition in the ag space, and President Biden and his administration have discussed those same issues quite a bit as well, particularly as inflation is ramping up. How well do the Biden administration's priorities line up with NFU's, or where would you like to see some improvement from, uh, from the executive branch? Sure thing. Well, in the last year, uh, National Farmers Union has been running our Fairness for Farmers campaign, which talks about the need to support a resilient agriculture and to push against corporate monopolies within agriculture because of the harm they bring to farmers and ranchers and consumers in our rural communities. The Biden administration has shined a very bright spotlight on this issue. And I think that's due to a couple things. The, this was brought up on the campaign trail in 2020 from the Biden team as uh, the election was moving forward. And that is also related to how much attention the general public has paid to our food system in the last two plus years now of the pandemic. As we all know, the, the challenges in the food system were made very clear, very obvious uh, in the news and the grocery aisle. So we see the, uh, the need to address this and the Biden administration has taken some big steps uh, last year, right about this time, we had the executive order on competition in which agriculture featured prominently. There's been rules unveiled uh, and continuing to be unveiled by the USDA related to Packers and Stockyards Act enforcement. And the legislative priorities that have come out from the Biden administration and then been carried out by members of the House and Senate have made it clear that uh, the administration and leadership in Congress are really committed to this. It's worked out well, I think, in that farmers unions perspective on these issues isn't something new. <laughs> We've been fighting these battles for decades. And the fact that general, the general public's uh, attention is, is now turned towards this means that we have an opportunity here. And I think that's resonated with farmers and ranchers and rural residents across the country. 
I think you're right. I've heard more about food prices from my urban friends who are well off the farm over the past two years than I had ever heard in my life before. And that presents an opportunity. And we've got this kind of spotlight shining on the industry in an election year. Mike, what is NFU trying to push for in candidates or, or conversations you're trying to bring to the campaign trail here over the summer in rural areas? Yeah, I, I like that point, Mike, uh, about the, uh, the attention that folks in, in the city or people relatively removed from agriculture are paying to food prices. But I think in addition to that, people are also looking deeper into what that means and in particular, especially the spread between the, what the, is being paid at the grocery store and what farmers and ranchers are receiving. You know, the, we've been tracking USDA tracks, the farmer's share of the food dollar. And just the questions that we've been getting about how is it that only 15 percent or so of all the money spent at grocery stores gets back to farmers and people want to learn more about that and have been digging in so i think that's one of the uh, issues that's you know going to be in the minds of voters uh, this fall not just on the food price side but on what's being done to address those inequities and why is there such a big difference and why does that difference continue to spread between uh, packing companies, uh, processors seeing record profits while farmers and ranchers are struggling to get by, even as high prices, relatively speaking, are out there, the input costs and all the other associated expenses we have continue to amount. So I think that will continue to be a campaign issue for uh, members of Congress, and uh, it, it's one that they're going to get a lot of questions about when they're on the, on the trail in August and beyond. I think you're exactly right about that. Lots of conversations about that issue here in the upcoming months. Mike, let's go a little farther into the future. Farm bill discussions are ramping up. I'm sure NFU members have been submitting their suggestions and their, their wish lists for the 2023 renegotiation. What are you expecting? What would you like to see changed at this early stage in the game? Or what do you hope maintains in the farm bill as we get into next year? Certainly, yeah, those ideas are coming in fast and furious. And we've got... Uh, ongoing discussions within Farmers Union about what to prioritize and how to get those out there. But I think there are some common themes emerging. Uh, we've been talking about one of them already, and that's competition. Uh, previous farm bills, like in 2008 or uh, 2014, included some provisions related to competition, especially in livestock. But I think the competition theme in the farm bill might be something that needs to be further explored and prioritized. And Mike, just to just to build on that briefly, would you be looking at the rules that were passed in 14 and 18 and then building on them or were they misguided and we need to rewrite them to target a different angle? Sure. So looking at uh, some of those rules from the, uh, those days, the uh, uh, there was the Packers and Stockyards rulemaking process that was really set in motion back in 2008 uh, with uh, the Obama administration and that whole rulemaking process ran into a lot of opposition from meatpacking companies and uh, processors. Uh, I think we're in a different paradigm now. That wasn't the, the actual rules were not part of the farm bill, so to speak. Uh, the farm bill gave direction about how to pursue them. So I think we're operating in a little different space now. What was in those farm bills was on country of origin labeling and uh, making sure that livestock mandatory price reporting was out there. These sorts of priorities from farm bills past could be carried on, or at least the concepts of them could be carried on into a 2023 farm bill. And a lot of the topics we're talking about here, uh, whether it's on price transparency or investigations, may need to be carried on in a farm bill as well. So we're obviously hoping to get a lot of that done sooner than later, but many of it, much of it could be talked about in a farm bill context. Beyond All right, boys, though. that is just around the corner. It's hard <laughs> to believe. Mike, if we've got listeners who want to get up to speed on what National Farmers Union is working on in D.C., where can they go for more information? Absolutely. You can check out nfu.org and uh, look for our Fairness for Farmers section as well, where you can uh, get up to date on Fairness for Farmers legislation and uh, what the organization is doing to help out. Keep up to date with what's changing in D.C. Our thanks to Mike Strands, Vice President of Advocacy there at the National Farmers Union. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. A pleasure as always. And when we return, we'll talk to Narita Taylor about Robin Hutchinson's testimony yesterday for the FMCSA. Stick around for more AOA.
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and, if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <clears throat> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40-plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American, as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. It's been our legacy year after year, and we're proud of our heritage. At FS, our focus has been on improving growers' profitability by developing leading products and services to advance operations. Year after year, we've been committed to pointing the way forward. So visit fssystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Ironman. 
But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ eye and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. If you've listened to this program here over the past several months, you'll note that we've been talking a lot about the trucking industry. That's something that we can't live without. Every good that we use on our farms and in our homes was probably brought at least that last mile on a semi-truck. And with all the challenges in supply chains and now yet another record high price for diesel fuel, that industry continues to do its best at slogging through these headwinds. On Wednesday, the Senate hearing at the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee featured Robin Hutchison. She's the acting administrator of the FMCSA, and she testified about several issues that are important to the trucking industry. Joining us today to bring us up to speed is Norita Taylor. She's the director of PR at the Owner Operator Independent Drivers Association. Norita, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure to join you and your listeners. Thanks for having me. Of course, let's talk about what uh, what Administrator Hutchison was addressing there before the Senate. What were their main questions for her at, her, at the hearing? Well, they have a lot of questions for her, but the thing that uh, our association, which represents small business and professional truckers, was that some, some topics came up that were rather con- concerning to us, and that is uh, mainly regarding this idea of a truck driver shortage. Now, we were rather surprised that that came up and that Ms. Hutchison was rather supportive of that idea because in the past, what we have observed from the Department of Transportation is a recognition that there's a serious retention order, uh, a, a, a retention problem as opposed to a shortage. And so we were a little taken aback because that topic tends to lend itself to um, agendas that we think are contrary to uh, what's best for the trucking industry. Now, that is a really good point, Norita. Can you explain how how the difference between retention isn't necessarily in shortage and how that is impacting these proposals to fix, quote unquote, the industry? Sure. So, So what's been going on for many years, going back decades, is that there there is difficulty in getting and keeping people in the long haul sector of trucking. So it's it's a tough job. It's not for everybody, but it is something that we want to encourage anyone that's interested in in being in trucking and doing because you can always use people, at, you know, seeing it as a career. But what has tend tend to happen is that. You know, those working conditions have worked against the industry and people uh, get in and they don't stay in. And that driver churn is not real, it's not real safe to have, you know, constantly new people out on the highways. Well, what we would like to see happen is that, you know, administrators, policymakers, lawmakers, we'd like them to put first things first and go back to the problems with why it's so hard to keep people. We've got detention. We've got uh, truck leasing schemes. All of these things going on that work against the industry. And the American Trucking Associations have long claimed that, you know, there's this massive and growing shortage and that the answer to that is to lower the age to get a CDL. And that's one of the uh, policies that we see out there that we don't think would be a very good idea. And that policy, I understand it's a pilot program right now, the safe driver apprenticeship to allow under 21 drivers on the road? Sure. There's a, there's a pilot program, and there's also a proposal to just outright lower the CDL age from 21 down to 18. 
Okay, so those are both floating around there. And you touched on the challenges to keep folks in this industry. And Narita, one that you've mentioned on the show before is parking and how that is such a struggle and how much time truckers waste just trying to find a place to park for their legally mandated rest time. Was there any conversation about truck parking at her at the hearing? Well, as a matter of fact, we were rather disappointed that that didn't come up because that is something that, you know, some congressional leaders have been telling the Department of Transportation that the lack of parking remains a critical safety issue that requires some attention. And it's something that um, some lawmakers have even um, put out proposals that would um, increase parking. And it would not just be just a matter of, you know, some electronic apps or electronic devices that, you know, along the highways that tell truck drivers, you know, how many spaces are available at the next truck stop. We're talking about actually increasing real estate parking spaces, cement, whatever you want to call it, actually increasing where someone can park and rest, get their uh, required hours of service, or just take a break. That's something that we think should be a major priority by the FMCSA and the Department of Transportation. Norita, were there any funds for that physical construction in that big infrastructure bill that passed last year for truck parking? No, as a matter of fact, that, that didn't make it in there, and that was also something that we were rather disappointed uh, at happening because we thought that we had it in there, and then at the end of the day, the, the final, final uh, bill that was passed did not have it in there. All right, so that discussion is going to continue on Capitol Hill. Norita, I understand that uh, Ms. Hutchinson is currently the acting head of the FMCSA. She has not been confirmed yet by the Senate. ATA, I understand, a point, uh, supports her nomination. Does the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association have a position on whether or not she should head the uh, organization? We, we still support her nomination. We just want to address these concerns that, you know, we think that the conversation kind of took a turn that it should not have, and we'd like to see those things um, addressed, like I said earlier, first things first. Instead of just adding more people, let's find ways to make sure we're doing everything we can to make this a career that people join and stay. Right. Get the right people. Keep them working hard. Keep them happy. Make sure the job is comfortable and get goods to where they need to go. We've been talking to Norita Taylor of Owida, the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association. Norita, thanks for joining us today. Anytime. You just, you just uh, let me know. We'd be glad to uh, talk to your listeners about anything trucking related. Well, we'll take you up on that, Narita. And folks, do be sure to tune in to AOA on Monday. We'll talk to Jackie Fatka about policy in D.C. We'll talk to John Baranek about the weather. And Mr. Arlen Suderman will join us to break down today's USDA WASD report. Folks, have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support. Give you tips for living a better life. And share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better Better lives together.